right, so we are going to uh, continue our study through the book of Isaiah, and now we're going to pick up uh, a really cool section, Isaiah 28, Isaiah 28. So open up to Isaiah 28. If you don't have a Bible, these kind folks walking down the aisle will give you one. Just raise your hand, and they'll, they'll give that to you. Isaiah 28. Now, before I have you stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, um, I'll give you a couple updates uh, real quick. It, our, our building permits for the new building have been approved. Yeah. yeah. So it, it looks as though uh, we'll be pouring uh, the, the foundation in the sanctuary um, in this coming week or the next. Um, we've already st- we've finished the exterior painting. We've run the electrical, the conduits for the electrical. Um, it's all coming together, and it's very exciting. Um, and so we're thrilled. We, uh, the, the person building it um, is doing it at cost. You, you don't understand what that means. Uh, <laughs> that's a phenomenal gift. Um, and not only are they doing it at cost, but they are pushing each of the contractors to do it at cost. <laughs> uh, we had a, we, we, the, the sanctuary needs a new air conditioner, and this, this was going to put us way out of budget. Um, and they have long working relationships with the contractor and just said, um, is that the best you can do? <laughs> well, this is, a, oh, thank you. That's one. Is that the best you can do? <laughs> so uh, we got a really smoking deal on, uh, on an air conditioner and, and, and that's going to be installed and we're still under budget. Um, but we've had to cut a lot of things to get under budget, but we are under budget uh, one of the things we wanted window treatments, but um, we we're going without the window treatments in order to do the air conditioner. All these things we can do in time, um, and uh, you know, there's certain things we, we want to have screens in the back, and but we'll get there. We'll get there. It'll be a, a building that'll be resplendent. We'll be able to occupy it, and in time, we'll be able to add things that we really want. And some of you are going, "Well, I want this and I want that. That's great. Just write a check, and we'll get that for you." <laughs> but in the meantime. <laughs> And by the way, I wanted to clarify one thing. Um, you, Micah said that Kevin Golan will be smoking pineapples. He, it's, he doesn't smoke them. He's, he's a barbecue guy. Uh, okay. I was worried because he has kind of long hair and he looks like a stoner. And it's, it's not what you think. It's not the Pineapple Express. This is a legitimate barbecue guy. We good? All right, let's get back to the word here so I can set it up. Uh, as we've been uh, uh, going through the, 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 the book of Isaiah, uh, we're now, we're not quite halfway there. And we're, we've, we finished in chapter 26 and 27 and 28 go into this, uh, this judgment on Ephraim. And Ephraim is, uh, you know, as, as the Lord's going through all these judgments on the nation, he picks Ephraim, which is uh, part of the Jewish realm. And he, he, uh, he, he speaks to them in that they've abandoned the Lord and they've in, embraced uh, uh, addiction through wine consumption and the like, and their entire world is falling apart and their nation is imploding, and God is declaring this and speaking to them that he's judging them. But as God does, as he's giving this heavy word to Isaiah, and Isaiah has to present this to each of these nations, and he has to do it in a, in a, a myriad of ways, but then God periodically gives him these times where his head's above water and he gets to see something that encourages him. 
And in, a, in Isaiah 28, we see one of these words of encouragement, and there's going to be a term that reflects Jesus Christ in a messianic statement in Isaiah 28. And it's a very interesting way to look at Christ. Um, and it's going to refer to the Lord in that capacity. So we're going to take a look at that and that word and how it applies to us today and, and the significance of it. And I really believe that this is going to be a word of encouragement to us because um, we're in some very interesting times. Uh, and, and I don't know about you, but it's like a roller coaster. Oh, this is, oh, oh, that's not you. Oh, and you just, you know, and you're wondering, oh, we're, everything's going to implode. AB 2943 and nobody. And uh, what am I doing Tuesday? Can I get up there? And we're going to lose our religious freedoms. SB 54, we didn't win. And, and everyone's going over and, over and all these things. And calm down. Calm down. God's not up in heaven going, oh no. There was only one vote on the council in opposition. What are we going to do? That's all going to hell in a handbag. Lord's up there going, I don't know what to do. That's not the Lord. Lord's up there going, ah, come on. Come on. I'm going to have to do this on my own. I'm just hoping you guys participate a little bit. Well, Lord, I, I've got things to do on Tuesday. I can't go to Sacramento. Okay. All right. Well, then I guess you want me to do it. I'll just open up a can of Jesus. You won't get the lid on. But maybe you guys could go up and do this because I want you to participate in my, my purposes on this earth. You know, I, I'm busy on Tuesday. I'm canceling. I'm going up there. And I'll tell you why I'm going up to Sacramento. It's important. There's, there's one thing that politicians understand, and that's a mass of people. And, and if I don't go, who's going to go? I can't count on you. You can't count on me. But we're accountable for ourselves before the Lord. And, you know, they're saying nobody's going to show up. A lot of people don't even know what AB 2943 is. Most churches aren't showing that video. And uh, I'm going to share with you in the message what happened on Friday. I'm going to share with you in this message what's going to occur in San Diego. I'm going to share with you some things that are of great importance that this passage speaks to. And this passage is so timely. I'm so grateful for it. And so I pray it encourages you and inspires you. And so let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. I'm going to read from verse 1 through verse 16. And it begins with this woe, and woe means woe. It's not good. It's, it's not good. And if the Lord says woe, he means it. And he says, woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys, to those who are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail, and a destroying storm. Did any of you guys see the hail that went in Texas? Breaking windows? It was, they were huge, it, it, like historically big. So if you didn't see it, then now you know the text. I'm just emphasizing that. All right, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing. Who will bring them down to the earth with his hand? The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, verse 3, will be trampled underfoot. And the glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is the head of the verdant valley, like the first fruit before the summer which an observer sees, he eats it up while it is still in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. 
But they also have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink. They're out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They're swallowed up by wine. They're out of the way through intoxicating drink, and they err in vision. They stumble in judgment, for all the tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. If you've ever been to um, the French Quarter in New Orleans, that verse will make sense to you. (laughs) It smells like that. I went to Tulane. We used to go down there when I was young, and it smelled like that. Verse 9, whom will he teach knowledge, and whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk, those just drawn from the breasts. For precept must be upon precept, and precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, speaking of teaching the word of God, and they're getting bored with that. Man, why do we have to always study scripture? Why do we have to, right? We don't say that. For with stammering lips, verse 11, and another tongue, he will speak to this people, to whom he said, this is the rest which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing. Yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. My word is to give you comfort, but you don't want to study it is what God's saying. Here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, which means hell, we are in agreement When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. And here's the verse that I want to conclude with, and this is the one we'll focus on. Therefore, which means everything that I just read, everything God just said to Ephraim, he says, with that understanding, therefore, this is what it's there for, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, that means pay attention, take a look at this, behold, I lay in Zion, that's in Jerusalem, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, whoever believes will not act hastily. And so we'll pray and we'll ask God to illuminate us. Lord, we do ask that because your word says that you lead us into all truth, Holy Spirit. And so we ask that you'd illuminate our minds to understand your word and that we would apply it. And in that fine comfort, line upon line, precept upon precept, that we would not tire of it or be bored of it, but we'd be inspired by it and changed by it and challenged by it. And so, Lord, please, I pray that our hearts would be open to receive your living word that transforms the worlds. We pray, God, that you would masterfully work in and through us and speak to us this day. And so, God, we commit this entire time to you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a seat, if you would, unless you want to stand the whole time. So here, Ephraim is abandoning God's word. They're finding comfort not in the word of God, not in the the precepts and promises of the Lord. They're finding comfort in uh, being inebriated. And he speaks of intoxication, which is in the Hebrew, an understanding of addiction, that that it's taken hold of their lives, that they can't say no. And anyone who's ever been addicted knows what I speak of. And and I know what that is like. I, I know what it's like to be under the grips of something and not want it, but can't say no to it. And, and, and if you're in judgment of me, careful, because just whoever's near that person, there's lightning coming. So just scoot away from them. And I know what it's like to, 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 to cry out to God and say, God, I don't want to do this anymore. Those things I don't want to do. God, why do I do those? Anyone ever had that problem? Or is it just me? Praise the Lord, Billy. Yeah, okay. And a few other honest people in the room. Only me? Liar. 
Those things I don't want to do, those I do. The Apostle Paul said it, in case you think I'm in bad company. The Apostle Paul said, those things I don't want to do, those I do. And those things I want to do, those I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And, and you've said this before, I know you have. You say, God, I swear I'll never do that again. And then you find yourself doing it again. And this idea, it's got a hold on you. It's got a grip on you. And I'll tell you the times... The times where I I have victory are the times that I'm in his word, precept upon precept, line upon line. His word gives me strength. It it renews my mind. It equips me to face the day. The times where I find myself struggling is when I'm not in the word. I'm drawn to those easy checkout things. Sin comes natural to me. I don't even have to practice it. Studying, the Bible says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who need not be ashamed. Reading scripture, people go, oh, the Bible's boring. And, And I always tell them, so are you. But the Bible can change your life. It can strengthen you. It can give you hope and and, and give you a perspective that will transform and you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's amazing. It's living. It's breathing. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides the thoughts and the intents of your heart. It's it's fascinating. And it it takes away your fear and brings you faith. And and yet it, it, it comes simply by precept upon precept, line upon line that you study it. But people go, oh, that's boring. I just, just talk about feel good stuff. Tell me positive messages, 12 steps to a happy life, blow sunshine my way. Why does it have to be so intense? Why do we have to go through Isaiah? Why are there judgments? Why, 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 why? And yet we find in this world where we abandon God's word and we embrace and we say, I know what I need to do and, and eat, drink and be merry. Tomorrow you die. I want to get the most out of life. I want to live, I want to live to the fullest. And I, and I, I think to myself, and this is one of those things that, that is a burden to me. And, and I, I don't bring judgment upon the person I'm about to speak of or the people I'm about to speak of because, quite honestly, one in particular is, is a person that I've been fascinated by and I've enjoyed the work that they've done. And I, I, ideologically, I disagree with them. I've heard them comment on things in the past, and I'm like, ah, I don't agree with that. But what they've done and the way they've tried to engage the world and understand the world and the travels that they've done is, is Anthony Bourdain. I, 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 I'm moved by that guy's work, and I was, I was sad he hung himself in France. Kate Spade, I mean, the work she's done and the things she's accomplished, and, the, and, and to hear that, it's, and I look at that and I think, gosh, you know, both of them had families, both of them have children, they, why? And, and you know, pinnacle of success, you've been everywhere, you've experienced everything, you've had the richest of foods, you've had the most ex- experience, experiences in life that most people never get a chance to do. You've seen, uh, you've been to Antarctica, you've been to the North Pole, the South Pole, you've been to every continent, you've, you've eaten every amazing food, you, you, you excel. Why would you do that? And, and, the, and the sadness that it leaves, and, and as a chaplain, a sheriff's chaplain, when I see people commit suicide, they think that they're, 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 they're making a statement. All they're doing is leaving devastation. And I know at times people do that, and, and, and it, it may be induced by psychosis or a myriad of other things. And, and that's not a judgment statement. It's just, it, it, it strikes me as, if there was something to be found outside of God, they would have found it, because doggone it, they tried hard to do it. They, they got more living in their life than most people do in 10 lifetimes. And yet it's fascinating that you can, you can be in a crowded room like this and still be all alone. You can be depressed in a room like this. You can be surrounded by family and still be empty and depressed. And, and, and the reason why is because God created us for relationship and the first relationship is with him. There's two stations to the cross behind me. There's the vertical and there's the horizontal. 
Who is it? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> we're gonna. We're in the new facility. We're wiring the chairs that when your phone goes off, you get electrocuted. <laughs> oh, you answered it. Man, that is gutsy right there. Tell him I said hi. <laughs> Where were we? So you have the vertical and the horizontal. Now here's why life is difficult when you don't have a relationship with the Lord. If the vertical isn't established, because God created us to have a relationship with him primarily, and then secondarily with each other. If you take the vertical out, the horizontal is difficult because we can't trust one another. We have no precepts, no line upon line. There's no barometer to, to, to govern our behavior. So we lie to each other. We deceive one another. We're selfish. And, and we may live in a culture that has some sort of vestige of morality, but that breaks down in time when the vertical's gone. And we start to find ourselves empty and hurting. And then we hurt others in response to the pain we've received, and then the whole thing implodes. And, 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 and to run to try to hide the pain that we've caused and received, we engage in illicit behavior. And so now we have an opioid addiction. We have alcoholism. We have... You know, and you talk about, well, opioids and, and, and you know, the, the heroin coming into our country. That's vile. It's awful. But let's not forget, 450,000 people in America, 450,000 people a year die from nicotine and alcohol before we even get to the heroin side of it. Yeah, you got cancer. You got car accidents. You got all kinds of things. I mean, if we were losing 450,000 people a year in, you know, Afghanistan, we, we wouldn't tolerate it. And then we, we look at this, and then it, it, it goes into peripheral issues where you have gang violence, you have shootings, and you have on and on, all these things t- transpiring. This is the, the burden of it. And, and God is speaking to Ephraim. He's saying, this is, your, this is your situation. You've abandoned me, and this is a mess. This is a mess. Your, your culture, listen, your culture, pay attention, your culture's falling apart. It's disintegrating. And in the midst of that, God speaks to Isaiah in the midst of this, and he says, listen, behold, in relation to everything I described to you, I want you to understand something. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation. You know what a foundation is. Any builder in here knows your structure is only as good as your foundation, right? You have a bad foundation. Everything crumbles. I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone. This thing doesn't have any cracks. It doesn't have any dings. It is solid. It's a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. The idea is this is a stone that we can trust in. I, I think of this, and, and I like this Webster's Dictionary. What does a cornerstone mean? What is this idea of a cornerstone? Webster, Webster's Dictionary defines a cornerstone as, ready? A stone which lies at the corner of two walls or, and serves to unite them. Specifically, a stone built in a corner of the foundation of an important edifice as the actual or nominal fixed starting point in the building. A cornerstone gives direction to the rest of the foundation. It also is the support on which the rest of the building relies for strength and stability. In our case, believers, as believers, we trust in Christ. And this is where much of the building rests. And this is a a messianic statement that Christ is that precious cornerstone. Jesus Christ has has has, um, has not become this cornerstone by accident. This is declared by God. This is what He longs for in culture, and this is by God's initiative. 
He's been chosen by God, as we see in Isaiah 28, 16. This is, behold, I'm doing this, God the Father says. I'm laying this foundation for culture. I'm laying this foundation for the preservation of man. I'm doing this for you. This is a foundation upon which everything else is to be built. It's precious. Entomos is what, where we get it in, in, in the Greek. It means to be held in honor, to be prized. You, you find it translated from Hebrew into Greek in the Gospels of Luke and, and Matthew and Mark. It means to be dear or precious. It's something where you, you just, this has to be. This, this is the foundational aspect of everything in my life. He's the only begotten of the Father. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave this cornerstone, his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is the foundation of all of society and all of culture. This is a declaration. In Zion I have placed this, which means Christ would come through the lineage of David. He would, he, he would be crucified in Jerusalem right there in the midst of it all. Now, this concept of cornerstone found in, in, in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, and, and in this quote, you, you find it in Psalm 118, that the builders have rejected this cornerstone. They've rejected it. They don't want it anymore. I, I want to show you in, in building what a cornerstone looks like. This, this, is, this is it. It has to be laid level, both vertically and horizontally, Otherwise, the building, it, every other stone is established on, on, on the balance of that cornerstone. It has to be correct, both vertically and horizontally. If it's not, the building will lean and fall. It will stand the test of time based on the level aspect of that. And it has to be level. There has to be a rule. You understand that? It has to line up. 1922, there's a cornerstone. And there in Psalm 11.3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You see, if the cornerstone is screwed up or removed, the building implodes. Uh, Force 10, Navarone, it was a movie with um, Harrison Ford and uh, who's the other guy? Older guy. Thanks for your help. Huh? Huh? Sean, Sean Connery, no. 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 Come on. Stop. I know that Harrison Ford was in it. We'll just leave it at that. They had to destroy this dam. Um, you know what the fish said when he ran into this, the, the wall? Dam. Because it's a dam. So there was this... Brumpumps. <laughs> So you have this, this dam that's, and, and the Nazis are going back and forth over it and they've got to destroy this dam. And the demolition experts, how do you destroy this massive structure that is designed to stand and to hold back a force of nature? How, how do you, and it's just so sturdy and firm. Well, the demolition experts in Force 10 and Navarone, they put the, the explosives right in the cornerstone. Boom, blows up. And they're like, it didn't do anything. And in the movie, the demolition expert says, be patient, wait. And all of a sudden, the Nazis start driving over the dam and the thing starts shaking. Water starts pouring out of the bottom and then... Now, how much dynamite does it take to blow up a dam? It's not the amount, it's the placement. All you gotta do is hit the cornerstone. It all comes down. 
The cornerstone in our culture is Christ. The enemy understands this. Remove Christ from culture and it all implodes. Remove Christ from culture and it all implodes. The vertical, the horizontal, the building comes down. The vertical, the horizontal, the building comes down. If he can keep you from the word of God and you get bored about line upon line and precept upon precept and it's not the governing aspect of your life, nor do you want to impart it to your children, nor do you want to put it in the schools, nor do you want to do it. If, you, if that, just remove it and watch the culture implode. I contrasted, you know, watching graduations. I went to the Trinity uh, graduation. Fascinating. Violin playing, piano playing, recitals, dances, parents up there praying for them, speaking of Christ. I mean, you're watching these people with a direction. They're excited about the future. And then I contrast that with some of the school, my son's graduation. And, and their valedictorian speech, you're not allowed to talk about God, you're not allowed to talk about, and if you do, we're in the thing, and you're like, man, one is you're, you're launching these people into society, and you're going, what are they going to do? And over here, you're going, oh, we're launching them into society, I can't wait to see what they're going to do. And one brings great joy, and the other brings massive depression. Maybe you've never been to a graduation, just something I observed. Now, I say this because this, this cornerstone that we see in Isaiah 28, 16, that behold, I, God saying, the father, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The apostle Paul would refer to this to the church at Ephesus, a church that was struggling, trying to make a difference in the culture and build an edifice that would, that would secure culture, a culture that was struggling. And he says, now, therefore, uh, this is Ephesians chapter two. He says, now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. He's it. In whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. You see, God desires that we would build this culture, that we would align ourselves with the Lord, both horizontally and vertically, this, this picture of Christ and civilization. But if you remove that cornerstone, you become like Ephraim. It implodes. We have an opioid epidemic in our culture, especially in our community. We're watching as celebrities are checking out. It brings depression and grief and sadness. I, I participated on Tuesday night in what ended up being the largest, I think, in the history of the city council, one of the largest uh, attended Tuesday night meetings. The dais, the gallery was packed. Hundreds of people. There were over 100 speakers that night. We went till 1.10, 1.30 in the morning. Seven hour meeting. We still went through all the city business and the downtown development and all these things. And then we got to SB 54, which is the sanctuary state bill. And put that forward. And we, we heard the sheriff speak and did a great job and heard council members speak. And, and uh, you know, whether I agree or disagree, one of the things that was fascinating, and I had the privilege to pray with some folks before, praying for civility and praying that there'd be peace in the room because it's been contentious all over the state. Over 100 speakers, and with the exception of a handful, exception of a handful, everyone was civil. No ad hominem attacks, again, with the exception of a handful. The majority of folks were, were civil. They spoke to the issue. And the room was almost perfectly divided. At different times of the night, one group got larger than the other. But for the most part, the room was 
if you had to guess, it was evenly divided between those opposing SB 54 and those in favor of SB 54. And, and they gave impassioned pleas. Now, those in favor of SB 54, the clergy came out. Those in opposition to SB 54, only one clergy member, not a pastor, but a chaplain, and no other clergy. But over here, a lot of clergy. And I'm in opposition to SB 54, so I was a clergy, I was there, but I was also as a council member, and this clergy was in opposition to me. And I'm like, so we have, I mean, the whole community's divided, right? And, and this side is saying that they're opposed to immigrants, and this side, we're not opposed to immigrants, we're opposed to crime. And they're going back and forth, and everyone is trying to de- de- define their position. And, and I'm listening to it, and I, I talk with the sheriff in, in depth. I talked with a number of people. I did a number, lots of reading. And I just simply said to the sheriff, I read his statement that he had written, and I said, you're obviously in opposition to it. You know that it's a crime issue. Of, of all the folks that are incarcerated in federal prison right now that are, are immigrants, okay, they're not citizens yet, but for all those who are in federal prison as immigrants, 97% of those that have committed a felony that are in federal prison as immigrants, 97% of them are illegal immigrants. 3% are legal immigrants. Do you need me to repeat that? If you can break one law, you'll break another law. And my comment was, I'm not against immigration. I'm against criminal activity. Now you say, well, that's bigoted. And my comment was, as the city attorney spoke, and I have great appreciation for her and all my colleagues on the council, I said, there was only one requirement given to me, and this will make sense in a moment, you'll understand. There was only one requirement given to me when I was elected by the people. By, by, by the people means the sovereign. Because we know our constitution, the preamble says, we the people. You're the sovereign, you're the king. And you, the people, elected me to represent you by consent of you. Your consent was a vote. The consent of the governed. It's in the Declaration of Independence. What that means is we've been created equal, endowed by our creator with inalienable rights, among those being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. For this reason, governments were instituted among men for the preservation of those, right? And by the consent of the governed, which means we're equal, so you say to me, I, by my consent, I am going to elect you to represent me in this constitutional republic. But you have a requirement. If you're going to legislate on my behalf and represent me by my consent, you have boundaries. These are, this is the level. These are the rules. You are in this box. This box was designed in covenant and compact with the citizens of this nation to say, this is how you can operate in order to preserve my liberties if you're going to represent me. Article 1, Section 8 of this Constitution. Constitution means statute, immovable object, foundational. Nothing moves this. This is what our culture is built on. It has a separation of powers because we know that man is innately evil and he wants to, to, to gather power to himself. He wants to suppress human beings. So we separate those powers, legislative, executive, judicial. Article 1, Section 8 simply says that the legislature is in charge of immigration. That means it's a federal issue. Naturalization is what they call it. They're in charge. And so when someone comes into the country illegally, 
And then you hang in there because you're, you're going to shut me down. Friday, I was in Northridge at a church speaking on SB 54 and AB 2943. A Hispanic church with over 3,000 members. Pastors from all over the state, mostly Hispanic, gathered. I was one of the folks and we invited all the press to come and no press came. Next to me was Nets Gomez, the pastor of this church. He immigrated here from Mexico. He came to the United States to be a missionary to the United States from Mexico. He became a U.S. citizen. He oversees this entire church. The lion's share of those in his church are illegal immigrants, many of them. And he is standing in opposition to SB 54. He's standing in opposition to AB 2943. This is a pastor, mind you. His entire congregation, more than likely by his estimation, is Democrat. I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican. I don't care if you're legal or illegal. I'm, I'm speaking about something of significance to all of us. He speaks. I speak. We had an attorney speak. We had two folks that came out of the homosexual lifestyle speak. And as we sat there and we spoke, he had to interpret for everyone because they all spoke Spanish. They didn't speak English. He had to interpret for me. So here you have a white evangelical Republican from this area of town and you think, what does he have to say to a primarily Hispanic community? Especially when my mi español es muy mal. <laughs> and, and, and as he's interpreting, I said, look, I want to tell you how I met Nets. And I told you guys this story. I took him to lunch. I said, you need to run for office. And, and he said, I, I, I want to meet for, for lunch and talk about this. I said, great. And, and I got there early and I gave my credit card to the waitress. And I said, I want to pay for the pastor and his wife. And and little did I know, not, not only did he come with his wife, but he brought his whole staff with their spouses. And the waitress looks at me, I'm like, ah, go with it. It's pricey. And, and I sat there, and everyone on his staff, they're from Venezuela, they're from Honduras, they're from El Salvador, they're from all the way down the line. Um, I don't have my legal papers yet, I'm still waiting, all the way down the line. And I said, I want to tell you something. Tell me about Venezuela where you left. Well, my fiance's there, a young kid. My fiance's there. My family's still trapped there. The country's imploding, and I came here, and I found safe haven, and I don't have my immigration papers, and I'm being protected. I said, okay. I said, do you want America to turn out like Venezuela? No, that's why I came here. I said, okay. I just want you to know, don't care if you're legal or illegal. I want you to understand the principles of a constitutional republic and the First Amendment freedoms that we've been given to protect this cornerstone, this statute, this constitution, this immovable fact. You need to understand this because if you don't, it's going to follow you here. And there will be nowhere else to go after this falls apart. And they were captivated. And I shared this with all who are present. And I said, this is northern Los Angeles County. I live in southern Ventura County. This is both northern LA and southern Ventura are State Senator Henry Stern's district. Southern Ventura County is mostly conservative. Northern LA, Northridge, this area is mostly liberal. This is where all of his votes come from and indicates any votes here. I said, you're in his district. And I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican. Today, we're all going to be Christocrats. <laughs> and the idea is, does he defend the First Amendment? Because he swore to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. 
just like I did. And I said, and if he doesn't, and this passes, it's time for him to be removed from office by the consent of the governed. And they all applauded. We have easily over 600 people ready to walk precincts in the northern region of Los Angeles to, to, to move, remove him from office. Again, it's not a Democrat or Republican statement. This is a foundation. You say, well, wait a minute. It's written by dead white guys. So we define each other by the color of our skin, not the content of our character. Where did these principles come from? We've gone through this. I've laid this out. And every one of them, the pastors came from all over California. They came up and said, will you teach us these principles in our churches? You bet I will. And, the, and now we're preparing um, uh, on the last week of June, I will be in San Diego with 300 Hispanic pastors interpreted, and we're going through all of this training for them as well. This is a massive voting block. Now, I share this with you because the only requirement that was given to me when I was elected by you, the people, the sovereign, was this. I, Rob McCoy, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the State of California against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the Constitution of the United States, the statute, this cornerstone. And I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. And I will well and faithfully discharge the duties upon which I'm about to enter. And that was my, I swore that. This bill, SB 54, is a violation of Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution. I can't in good conscience vote against it. And the, the attorney said, well, what about the California Constitution? I said, to be a part of the union, you ha- the, the state had to submit to the federal constitution. So it, it d- doesn't trump it. And there's a violation. They've broken the law, and we have to stand. I, I don't want to get into legal issue. I don't want to put the, 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 the city in financial you know, trouble. I just think we need to affirm that this is a violation of the Constitution we've sworn to defend. This, this is the cornerstone. And, and you say, well, that's a little much. Well, I'll get through the rest of this, and you'll understand momentarily. But I want you to turn to Psalm 11. It's a psalm written by David. Psalm 11, it's a psalm written by David. He was being chased by Saul. And you see this verse up here? Look at me if you would. Don't read quite yet. I just want to show you this verse. It's found in Psalm 11. It says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? I speak around the country, and typically when I do these American renewal projects, the person who would speak before me was a man named Rafael Cruz, who's the father of Ted Cruz. And Rafael Cruz would get up, and this was during the election, he'd get up and he'd talk and he'd share these things, and he's obviously in support of his son, and he would lay this out, and he would always use this verse at the conclusion of his message, and I would inevitably have to follow him every time, and he would say this, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And he would lay out all the destruction of the nation. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And it was almost depressing when he'd finish. He'd just say, we're we're going to hell in a handbag. And then unless there's a miracle, and no, 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 he lays this out. Well, the foundation is right. What can the righteous do? What, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? And I'd come up after him. And he always seemed to leave the room before I, he would hear me. And I go, we just heard the verse, 11.3. If the foundation is destroyed, what can the righteous do? And I, I'm getting more tactful, but I wasn't then. I'd say... 
The answer to the question, because there's a question mark, the answer to the question is, rebuild the foundation, stupid. (laughs) I've removed stupid since then. (laughs) Rebuild the foundation. Look Look at in context. This is not a desperate statement. Look in context. Let's now read Psalm 11. David writing it. In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to the mountain? You see everything around you imploding. I'm going to Montana and I'm going to build me some fences and get some canned goods and they are 15. I'm a homeschool and we're all going to just, and and they're going to come through and we're going to take them out. (laughs) No, no amen. David says, am I to flee to the mountain like a bird? I put my trust in God. Nothing, no weapon fashioned against me will stand. I don't, I don't need to flee. No, there are times you want to flee if you're, you know, one of our brothers and sisters in the Middle East and ISIS coming and Paul was lowered through a basket. Yeah, in times where you can live to fight another day, it makes sense. But even when Paul would survive, he'd still go back into the city and confront him and they'd kick him through the streets like a soccer ball, but he stood. There was times the Lord said, you know, why don't you go? Other times, here, stand. Look at verse 2. For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And David says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous. But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he'll rain coals, fire, brimstone, burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous and he loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Amen. Most pastors take this passage out of context and they're, they leave us with a hopeless situation. That's how I always felt with Raphael. Maybe that wasn't intention, but that's what I always felt. And David's saying, I don't have to flee. Stand. The scripture says, having done all to stand. Stand. That's David's picture. This is what God calls us to do. There will be perilous times. We see that in 2 Timothy 3. Paul wrote of it. There are times when when it's a little scary. I have no doubt that the moral condition of America could get worse. And and the foundations seem to be crumbling, no doubt. Hostilities towards Christians will increase. And I've, I've never seen anything like this in my lifetime. But it's certainly not that bad. I mean, I got some nasty grams and a couple of mean things. And... Oh, no. Some of you have found your careers a little stymied because you've stood for Christ. The churches in our lifetime are going to see the loss of their tax exemption. They've already lost it in Germany, and the people still go to church. And some people go, well, I'm not giving anymore because I don't get that tax reduction. I said, why you give? <laughs> Stop that. You speak out against the media and the tide, you'll be vilified in the social media. Just go on next door, neighbor, and see what that, that's lovely. Other Christians won't want, want to be around you because you're, you're just, you're just, you're too militant. Why, are you, why do you have to stand in opposition? Evangelical leaders, they're, they'll cave. They already have. We invited all of the evangelical leaders to join us in Northridge. One pastor showed up other than myself. Now, granted, they're busy. I don't, I don't fault them. It's, 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 it's graduation. They're, they have things to do. I've been to many graduations this week. I don't fault them, but I'm looking at these inner city pastors and they're, we have got to do this. 
I've watched in the Calvary Chapel movement that compromises that, well, maybe, maybe we can find a biblical precedent for gay marriage. Perilous times. 2 Timothy 3. How are we going to respond? Are we going to run and hide? Are we going to flee in the time of battle? Are we going to fold like a cheap suit? We have to stand and fight for what we believe in. The Coast Guard says in their motto, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. Some of you are like, I'm not in. I quit now. That's just, that's just too much. <laughs> Do we want, run away? Do we become bitter? Do we resort to violence? Do you get embittered to the opposition? You just want to be, you just want to call them names and just write visceral emails back and forth about how, and it's a conspiracy. Okay, so it is. So what? What, are you going to lay awake and figure it out? Line upon line, precept upon precept, trusting the Lord, seeking him, filling your heart, being transformed by the renewing of your mind, realizing you don't have to operate in fear, but in strength. I mean, at times, it seems as though the opposition is winning so profoundly that there's nothing we can do. But I have news for you. If you have a small God, you've got big problems. Let me repeat that. If you have a small God, you've got big problems. But David points out so clearly, he just says the Lord is in his temple, the Lord is in his throne in heaven. He's not up, God's not up there going, oh my goodness, this is awful. What are we going to do? <laughs> the Lord is in his holy temple. We need God first and foremost. God's not shocked by the school shootings. He's not shocked by decisions of the Supreme Court. None of that stuff gets him. Nothing surprises him. He's just waiting for his people to engage. His eyes watch. He examines everyone. The Lord examines the righteous and the wicked. He hates the lover of violence. He'll rain burning coals and sulfur on the wicked, scorching wind in their portion. No one gets away with anything. The reason why God's allowing us is because he's patient and he's waiting for us to change it. We're not a subculture. We're a counterculture. When the foundation to destroy, what can the righteous do? Political action. Oh. Oh. Pastor, you're getting a little uppity. You need you to take your convictions to the voting booth. Well, I don't vote. I'm sorry, What? These folks have fled Latin American countries because they want to come here where a vote actually matters and you're not even going to engage it. Politics is dirty. So is the church. So is the world. Uh, what's your point? I'm tired of voting for the lesser of two evils. Unless Jesus is running for office, it's always the lesser of two evils. <laughs> Write letters, speak out, refuse to be intimidated, support good candidates, run for office yourself. Don't roll over and play dead. Don't lament. What can the righteous do? There's lots to do. There's plenty to do. You can't retreat. Where are you going to run? There's nowhere else to go. Why do you think everyone's coming here? This is a last great hope because of that statute, that firm foundation. It's the word of God, the constitution. It's a firm foundation. You need a fresh view of God and a long view of history. This has survived for over 230 years. It's the freest place on the face of the earth. There's nowhere like it. 
And we're about to lose it in our generation simply because we don't want line upon line and precept upon precept. And we don't want to engage. And we want to read Psalm 11.3 and say, what can we do? There's lots we can do. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It's Christ. Back in culture. Vertical, horizontal alignment for the rest of culture. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. And Isaiah goes on later to say this, and pay attention to it for those of you who have given up and you want to quit. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. Those from among you, we're going to rebuild this. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. This is our privilege. Align it vertically and horizontally. It's Christ. Not a subculture, a counterculture. Engage in every area of culture because that foundation won't crumble and we won't all be drunk and addicted. And our kids won't be thrown to the wolves. Our families will be strong. Our, our, our economy will be vibrant. And, and to speak this to the church, it's almost like, and I, I don't speak about us. I'm, I'm talking about the church in general. This is an amazing congregation. And I mean that with all my heart. I can't do what I do without you. You give me the privilege to do the things that I did in Northridge and in San Diego and all over the country. You do that. The builders want to reject this chief cornerstone, Jesus. We're trying to infuse him in culture. But here's what I want to finish with. To say this to a group of pastors who don't want to engage and they want to read Psalm 11:3, like, what can we do? The rapture's coming. Let's just, the house is on fire. Let's get the kids out. They even use their eschatology to be apathetic. They have no concern for future generations. Eschatology means study of the end times. They think the world's going to... We're polishing brass on the Titanic as pastors. Yeah, well, this is a really good job. I got to make sure that's shiny because we're going down. I mean, that's the task God gave us. Yeah, polish brass on the Titanic. No, he said, occupy until I come. Be the salt and the light, the moral preservative, the light that illuminates, the salt that penetrates. Change future generations. Intercede on behalf of those who are being led to the slaughter. Don't make a covenant with death, as it says in in Isaiah 28. Be a change agent. Go to Sacramento on Tuesday, even if it comes at cost to yourself. Participate. And yet it seems to fall on deaf ears. Not here. Not here. But as I speak across the country, countless pastors say, I can't vote for somebody as immoral as that man. So you can't vote for an immoral man? No. So you're going to vote for an immoral woman? Well, no, I'm not going to vote for either. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Silence in the face of evil is complicit with evil itself. Who are you voting for? I'm not going to vote. Okay, so you're standing on the tracks, a train's coming, and you're not going to do anything. Then you're making a vote for death. You can't be neutral. Jesus says, you're for me or against me. Well, I can't be for me by voting for an immoral man who's been three times married and twice divorced. I get that. Man, that president that we have, he frustrates me. I get irritated with him. Anyone else? Or is it just me? I, I didn't like him at first. I'm now starting to kind of love him. 
But there's things about him I really don't like. I, I don't like that I have to see paraded in front of me uh, the, the porn star that he, he's paying off. I don't, I don't like when he, when he brags and he makes statements that are just caustic and awful and vile. I don't like it. But in the same regard, I don't like the vitriol from the other side. I don't like any of it. I'll tell you what I do like. I do like that he contends for religious liberty. I do like that he contends for the unborn. I've never seen a president make more of a stand for the unborn in a major presidential debate than that guy. I like that black unemployment is the lowest it's ever been in the history of the United States. I like that, that Latino unemployment is the lowest it's ever been in the history of the United States. I like that the economy is going through the roof. I like that the, you know, we're not giving our wealth away. I, I want to see re- restoration. I like all that. But I'll tell you what has moved me the most is this president is not unlike every citizen in this country. Whatever the wealthy have enjoyed, he's enjoyed it. I've seen the plane he flies. I've seen the hotels he owns. I've seen the food he eats. Well, he likes McDonald's, I understand. (laughs) He can have anything he wants. He eats that. I'm in good company. Uh, But this 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 is what I want to close with. When, when pastors tell me I can't vote for an immoral man, I say, then take Rahab and Samson out of the hall of faith. Because yeah. Samson's life, if you read it in Judges 14, there's nothing moral about his life. Nothing. But Judges 14.4 says what Samson's parents didn't realize is God was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. He was a restorer of the nation. And Samson, even immoral, was willing to do what God's people weren't, and that was to stand against those who sought to destroy instead of build. And I look at this guy, and he, he is a disruptor, to be sure. Right? Irritating, disrupting. But there, there's a chance there might be peace in North Korea. We're going to denuclearize. I mean, wow. There's, there's, and I see these things, and I think, okay, jury's still out. But my point is this. Pastors are still struggling with him. Just like they struggle with Abraham Lincoln on the night that he was killed, April 14th, 1865. The pastors in America decried the fact that he was in a, in a theater on Good Friday. Moral pietism. Not the great emancipator, a sinner. Somehow we make ourselves feel better because we demean those who are stepping into the arena. And I moved by this next video you're about to see. It, it, it softened my heart massively. You show me a president that you've ever experienced in your lifetime that has ever done this. Let's show the video. With us today is a living reminder of this truth. His name is John Ponder from Las Vegas, Nevada. Where's John? Come on up here, John. Get up here, John. John grew up without his father. As he tells it, my mother was strong, but she wasn't able to keep us out of the gangs and off the streets, right? John was in and out of jail for years until at age 38, he was arrested for bank robbery. 
You don't look like a bank robber, John. <laughs> it's come a long way. John soon ended up in federal prison, relegated to solitary confinement. That's where God found him. John began to read the Bible and listen to Christian radio. Right? So incredible. Incredible. One morning at 2 a.m., he woke up to the voice of the great Billy Graham. Reverend Graham's words came through the airways. Jesus wants to be Lord of your life. That night, John dedicated his life to Christ. He spent the rest of his time in prison praying, studying the Bible, and bringing the Lord to his fellow inmates. The day after John's release, a visitor knocked on his door. It was the man who put him in jail, FBI Special Agent Richard Beasley. Who's here? Richard? Come on up, Richard. I want you to know that I've been praying for you very strongly. He said that God called me to the FBI in part because of you, John. The two are now lifelong friends. John, do you like him? I love him. Oh, you love him. <laughs> That's nice. That's beautiful. John runs a ministry that has helped more than 2,000 former inmates rejoin society, and he's the talk of the country. The job John does is incredible. John and Richard, you are a living testament to the power of prayer. Your story reminds us that prayer changes hearts and transforms lives. It uplifts the soul, inspires action, and unites us all as one nation under God. So important. And we say it here, you know? A lot of people, they don't say it. But you know what? They're starting to say it more, just like we're starting to say Merry Christmas when that day comes around. You notice the big difference between now and two or three years ago? It was, Paula, it was going in the other direction rapidly, right? Now it's straight up. Our country was founded on prayer. Our communities are sustained by prayer. And our nation will be renewed by hard work, a lot of intelligence, and prayer. Today, we gather to remember this truth. We thank God for the faith of our people. We praise God for the blessings of freedom. And we ask God to forever bless this magnificent land that we all love so much. America, thank you. God bless you. And God bless the United States. Thank you, everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you, John.
Now, I've heard him speak when we were in Orlando. He, he is not eloquent. <laughs> and some of the things he said, he's kind of doofusy. I'm just, and, and absolute respect for the office and the man. But what I want to declare to you is this is a man who's not unlike the rest of the, of the nation, trying to figure out how do we realign vertically and horizontally this foundation of our nation to make it great again. And we heard MAGA, Make America Great Again. Well, the, the principle, which is fascinating, is he's starting to, to comprehend, as you saw from Scott Lamb and David Brody, this is, this is a venture of faith for him. And even at this infancy stage as a president, and many believe that Abraham Lincoln came to Christ while in office, at this infancy stage, he's making more of a proclamation for the cornerstone, the foundation of Christ, than most of the pulpits in America. Regardless of how you feel, regardless of how you feel about this president, I will share this with you. A huge door has been opened up for the gospel in the next, and now 500 days into office, he has two years, maybe four more in addition to that. I don't know. But you have the privilege now to lay that foundation, that cornerstone. And, and, and if, you want to take, if you want to take Psalm 11.3 and go, oh, what can we do? Doesn't seem to be moving him adversely. He seems to be interested in doing something. If my people, God says, who are called by my name, Jesus Christ, Christians, will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. You lay that foundation, that cornerstone, tried and true, precious, both vertically and horizontally. And you say, what can the righteous do? Engage the culture. Engage the culture. Engage the culture. Do something. Quit whining and get busy.